Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today, our guest is Adam Ozemek, who is the chief economist with Upwork, uh, which is not related to Updog. So, uh, Adam, first of all, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Upwork, you, you might want to tell us a little bit about that. It has something to do with uh, remote work, I think. Uh, so, tell us, what is Upwork? So, it's the world's largest uh, freelancing marketplace. So, it's a place where businesses and independent professionals come to find each other. So, if you want web mobile software development, marketing help, uh, everything from that to, uh, you know, lawyers, accountants, stuff like that. Anything that a professional can do uh, as remote work for you or as a freelancer, you can you can find there. Yeah. And you, so uh, you've put out, I've seen a, a couple of reports related to uh, changes in remote work uh, in 2020, which of course there have been many. We're living in a remote work world now. <laughs> um so I guess first off, what like do you have any sense of how many people are working remotely right now and how that's likely to continue? Where obviously uh, we could see the light at the end of the tunnel in terms of the pandemic and COVID, but we're not there yet. Uh, what what is kind of the situation? Sure. So. I think that right now, probably about 40% of people are working fully remote. And that's um, from a survey that we just put out from Upwork that we did um, of uh, hiring managers, a thousand of them. And that's not that's not Upwork clients. This is we did this through an independent survey company, a thousand hiring managers. We found that 41.8% are working fully remote today full of their workers. So... And there's other estimates out there. Um, you know, Nick Bloom and his team are sort of in that general area. Uh, Gallup is in that general area. Uh, BLS is, is is pretty significantly lower. Um, they're at like 22%. But I think that, you know, there's there's a lot of... When you ask questions about working remote across surveys, you get different answers because people... I guess are sensitive how they answer it is sensitive to how the questions asked and what they consider to be remote and fully remote and partially remote. So with the caveat that there's a lot of uncertainty there, it seems like we've gone from somewhere between five to 10% who were fully remote before this to something like 40% who are fully remote today. And I think, you know, our, our, our results, we ask about the long run five years from now, and that, that suggests around 23% will be fully remote. So somewhere between one out of four and one out of five workers, I think, are going to be remote in the long run, which is obviously like a really big change and, and a, a really big, uh, you know, important dynamic in the labor market, even if, you know, most people are still going to be working in person. So, you know, that's, it's important, I think, to not take it too far and obviously there are some like you know techno utopian futurists or like we're all going to work remote whatever you know i don't know maybe in 200 years time we will but like most people are going to come back from the office that's totally come back to the office that's totally going to happen but that's still going to leave one out of four one out of five remote which is a really big deal do we know anything about 
uh, how the the move to remote has affected productivity. Um, obviously, there's there's other things. This has not been a ideal experiment in terms of remote work because there are other things going on, like uh, a lot of folks have kids at home that are not at school, you know, that may affect productivity or whatnot. But I mean, do we have any idea how this shift to remote work has affected productivity? There's three ways to look at this. One is what does the experimental, quasi-experimental evidence that existed before and sort of along with COVID, what does that tell us about what happens to productivity? That's the first way. And that in general suggests productivity goes up when uh, people are experimentally assigned remote work. So that those are obviously only a few studies and they're looking at um, – uh, only a few occupations. So that's like really narrow evidence. You have to worry about the external validity there. But the results there in that narrow evidence, um, narrow, well-measured evidence, do suggest productivity goes up. The second area we can look at is surveys. Uh, sorry, I, I just to stop you there. Is the theory there that, like, what's the theory for that? Is it that people are not getting distracted by uh, coworkers? Is it that, you know, they uh, are they're not pissed off because they had some long commute. Uh, they're just more comfortable at home. Like what, what's the, what's the theory there? Well, we get a little bit about that from the second vein of research, which is, um, a, a, you know, asking people how remote work is going, uh, post COVID. And we've done a couple surveys here and, um, you know, there you also find people report now individuals report productivity has gone up and also our data suggest managers, say productivity has gone up. So if you ask the managers what's working well about remote work, um, you know, no commute is part of it. Now, that doesn't necessarily affect productivity, but that's what's going well. The things that affect productivity are reduction of non-essential meetings, and less distraction at the office, and greater autonomy are the most common things we see. So you can easily imagine how those sorts of things can contribute to more productivity. I mean, you know, when people talk about the greatness of being able to like pop into your coworkers office and ask them a question and how that affects your own productivity positively, but forget how that affects your coworkers productivity. So on net, it seems like in the short run productivity uh, is up and maybe pop-ins are bad. Um, but that raises the question, which is sort of the third line of research is, well, what's going to happen in the long run to productivity and what's going to happen as, as time goes on. And, and in my mind, I think that this sort of, you know, productivity is going to get even better as people get used to this. And like you said, we're also dealing with COVID right now and kids are at home instead of being at school and those things all negatively impact COVID. And we've thrown these companies in to the remote work experiment like overnight. And so there's a lot of learning by doing that's going to go on and people learn how to do it better. Technology will improve. So in my mind, the experimental evidence says COVID is pro uh, positive on productivity the surveys post-COVID show that remote work is positive on productivity. And the data we have and common sense suggests that the productivity effects are going to grow over time. So overall, I'm pretty bullish on the productivity front. So you mentioned COVID, and I've seen some interesting suggestions out there that because remote workers have, I guess, the advantage, the privilege of continuing to work as they work from home or uh, remote office spaces, 
that we should tax them more as a way sort of to subsidize uh, people that are not able to work from home. What are your what are your thoughts about that from a, an economic policy perspective? Um, let me try to be diplomatic about it. Uh, that's one of the dumbest ideas I've ever heard. <laughs> no it's need like, to be diplomatic. <laughs> it's just so ridiculous. Um, and I'm not going to let, let's not, no one serious is making this argument yet. Um, it's all just like, you know, some guy at an investment bank put it in a report as a dumb idea and everyone got mad and that's all the farther it's got right now. And I think that's all the farther it's going to get. But let's try to not focus on that doofus and his doofus idea and think about the actual economic argument here, which is that remote work benefits only, you know, higher skilled, higher education people. I think that's a very, uh, what economists would call partial equilibrium look at it. And if you take the bigger picture, you can see the benefits for a lot of people. For example, um, you know, remote work is really making it a lot easier to do social distancing right now. So I know that people are like, well, people are working remotely and so they're not going out to eat and that's harming, you know, people in the service sector. But it's like those same people will tell you in another context that we need to be socially distancing more now. So is socially distancing good or bad? And does it become bad when remote work enables it? I, I don't think I think there's a lot of inconsistency there. And I think the answer is it's a good thing that remote work is letting us socially distance more even if that has negative short-term economic impacts on the services sector, then even if that harms lower income workers in the short run, because in the long run, that means less COVID spread. And that's what we're trying to do in basically all of our other you know, policy approaches. So I think remote work enables that. And to say that that's bad for low income um, people is really like blinkered view of it. And um, you know, need to look at the bigger picture. The other bigger picture thing is remote work is going to let people move to places that have traditionally been losing high-skilled people. If you look at like the Rust Belt areas and places in the South and you know a lot of post-industrial Northeastern cities, these places have been losing skilled people for you know the last few decades, and that causes serious negative spillovers for low-skilled people in those populations because you have um, you know fewer entrepreneurs you have fewer startups you have just you have these low dynamism low investment places and allowing people to live there creates positive spillovers for those who have stayed behind and the people who do tend to stay behind are low skilled so it's going to help their communities um, it's I believe helping to reduce the spread of covid and I think that like the focus on the inequality aspects of this are are, are way too narrow and just there's this pessimistic thinking that people just that their brains are just excessively drawn to, and it's showing itself on this topic. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think there's, you know, you may have thoughts on this, but it seems like there's almost a affordable housing argument to be made for work from home in the sense of if you have a a job that is rooted in New York City. But work, if you are able to work from home, you literally could be working from anywhere. So you don't have to pay, uh, you know, New York City rent. Yeah, and that's good for that individual. And it's also good for people who live in those communities that are lower cost of living that have been, you know, a lot of them losing population. Um, so, yeah, I think that that, it, you know, a bigger and bigger share of our economic pie is going to land rents as 
people crowd into these superstar cities because that's traditionally been how you access the great jobs there. But if we can disconnect the great jobs there from the high house prices there, you know, holding everything else aside, it's better if people choose to live in places where they build new houses, right? And that's, I think, going to be one of the effects that happens here. Yeah. And it's also even good for the people who stay in New York because uh, their rent is lower. <laughs> uh, I, th- I think I saw yesterday a chart that rents in New York City had gone down by like 20% over the course of uh, over the course of the year. I, d- I don't know exactly how they were calculating that. I'm assuming it was like new contracts or whatever. Um, but what so this is something I know that you have also done research on is this relocation thing. Uh, do, do we have you know? There's all sorts of anecdotes out there about this, um, but do we have any like hard data about how many people are really relocating because of remote work? Yeah, we did a survey of over twenty thousand people, and we asked, "Are you planning because of?" the greater ability to work remotely post COVID, are you planning to move out of the area? Now, obviously like this is a difficult issue to get out causally. And my approach to that was to be very specific about how I worded the question to make sure that they understood I was asking about remote work now because of, of COVID. And what we found was between seven and 11% of people are planning to move out of the area um, because of remote work post COVID. So that's a really high number. That's like three to four times the usual, um, uh, uh, more than county to county or out of county moves in a given year. Um, so I think that, you know, that survey suggests that people are definitely planning this. And if you look at housing market data, you can see it there as well, where the most expensive places, San Francisco, New York city, um, San Jose, they're seeing the biggest hits to their housing market. And this is exactly what theory predicts that, you know, people are going to move to out of the high, most expensive places into less expensive places. And, you know, you can see that in the vacancy data, you can see it in the rent data. Okay. So let me just ask some step back a little bit and ask a broader thing. Um, because in addition, and you know, long before you were uh, at your current position, you were uh, part of the uh, famed modeled behavior blog, uh, one of the big econ blogs of the of the old and classical period. Um, so I just I wanted to get your take on what the economic prospects are for 2021. We had a very strange uh, 2020 economically with big swings up and down, and obviously a lot of pain, uh, a lot of uh, big deficits, uh, lot, you know, a lot of government spending. Like, how do you see that on, you know, now that 2020, uh, hopefully the pandemic will be resolving. What do you see going forward? You know, what's going to happen macroeconomically? I think a lot of that depends on what kind of relief we get now and over the next few months, because, we're so close. Um, you know, we can see the, end, the light at the end of the tunnel now with the vaccine, and that rules out um, some much worse economic scenarios. It gives businesses incentive to sort of try to tough it out even further if they can make it through. 
So, it, you know, but we need more relief. The economy is slowing down. You can see unemployment claims increasing. You have a lot of, and also in the services industry, like you can see other data suggesting that people are like sort of locking down again and not going out to eat and not spending, which is obviously, you know, how we slow the virus spread, but causes a lot of economic strain in the near term. And so, you know, we need more relief to help businesses get through. There's still, you know, about 10 million people who have lost their jobs. And that's not even counting like people who are looking for their first jobs, you know, college graduates and stuff like that. So we need like 10 million jobs. That's a lot of jobs at risk. And if, um, you know, more and more of them turn permanent because we have a huge wave of business failures over the next few months as, you know, the, the third wave causes new lockdowns and, you know, new social distancing and stuff. A, a pretty bad, you know, tough to dig out of recession is still possible if we let that happen, if we just let things run its course. On the other hand, um, I think that household balance sheets have been helped by the CARES Act that helped us get to this point with fewer damages to, you know, personal credit conditions than normally happen. Um, or that we would have expected to happen. I think PPP and other things help business balance sheets make it farther too. And I think we've had fewer small business failures than could have been the case uh, otherwise. And that, you know, a, a lot of us suspected otherwise. So the businesses have really toughed it out to make it this far. And if we can help them make it through, I think we could be looking at a pretty quick recovery. Um, I think probably like, you know, one to two million permanent job loss. And so it's still going to take us a year or two to get out of that. But my hope is that this only puts us back into like the 2017, 2018 economy and not like the 2009, 2010 economy. But that's all very much still up in the air. Um, both the good place and the bad place are in view now, depending on uh, how how the relief goes. Um, but I think we have some great tailwinds. The housing market is in pretty good shape now. I think remote work is a really important economic driver, um, and you can already see, you know, increased patent activity in areas of remote work technology. Um, you know, it you kind of see some weird rumblings of like maybe this is shaking people out of sort of uh, you know shaking some innovation loose in 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 healthcare and and um, pharmaceuticals and like so there's like there's just kind of like weird, vague feeling of higher productivity is about to be set loose. And we'll see how that goes. I do think remote work is suggestive that that's going, you know, we're going to see that that is going to help. So I do think that there are reasons to be optimistic. I do think if we have, uh, you know, a very strong relief package, we can get the like macro situation just set back a few years and not like great recession levels. But if we don't do enough, then we're back to great recession. So that's not very helpful, um, but I hope that illustrates what's what's at risk and what's possible at least. Yes, well, I certainly would would uh, having having gone through that once, I don't want to go through that again. Um, okay, so uh, I, I'm going to turn topics here to something completely different that has nothing to do with remote work or even economics, but uh, of you know many many. Um, there's been a lot of news in 2020, uh, and one of the things that has, you know, like everybody's been focused on the election, 
you know, there's COVID, there was the BLM stuff, uh, all, all sorts of different things. And then in the middle of that, uh, we have had uh, a number of revelations regarding to what are known as uh, UFOs, right? Or actually, I think they have a, a new name for it now, like uh, to, to make it sound like it's not, not, not UFOs, another, another acronym. Um, but, you know, there have been some videos released by the Navy, various people, high, high ups in the government from like Harry Reid, Senate Majority Leader, uh, just recently John Brennan, uh, who was the head of the CIA under President Obama, I believe, um, have said, yeah, you know, there's a lot of material out there that we can't that we can't really explain involving this stuff. And I have, I have wanted to, I've, I've tried to get like various people, uh, you know, who are not crazy to come on to talk about like what it means. And, and, uh, uh, I've been able, uh, unable to do that, but I know that you on Twitter have talked about this and the need to take it seriously. So, so you were it. <laughs> so welcome. Um, so I mean, I guess first off, like maybe you could just, uh, tell us a little bit about like, what, what is your general perspective about what? what we know and why, you know, like talk, talk about, talk about UFOs has been around for like decades and decades. Uh, but this, this new stuff is a little bit different from like, you know, um, most of the earlier stuff, which is in my opinion, pretty easy to dismiss. So what, what do you think is, what do you think is new here and why, why is it something that is worth looking into? Yeah, it, it's an important question, and um, I'm glad you're asking because you know it's it's definitely not being discussed enough by people who should have an interest in it. And you know, definitely want to start with the important caveats, which is first, I'm not crazy, and I I thank you for including me in the list of people who are not crazy. Um, <laughs> I am I'm a skeptic. You know, when I grew up reading Skeptic Magazine, I was a subscriber, huge fan of Michael Shermer, who's you know the editor of Skeptic Magazine. Um, you know, James Randi, uh, Sam Harris, all these guys, like I, this is, that's, that's what I grew up with. That's how I think of myself. And so like, I'm not a UFO guy and I'm not coming at this with like a lifetime of excitement about UFOs and like finally proving my preconceived notions. Like it's as surprising to me as it is to any of you that I'm here talking about UFOs in 2020. And uh, frankly, I don't want to be, I don't want to be the UFO economist, but I just, it's like no one else is, there's not enough people who are willing to stand up and say, this is actually really surprising. We should be talking about it more. So, so I'm going to do it. I'm going to stay up and talk about why we need to be talking about it more. Um, So I think the best place to start here is the, chronology of two important incidents these are the incidents that we have video footage from that is an incident in 2004 on uh the uh uss nimitz carrier group um in the pacific ocean off the coast of california the second one is around the uh the uh, uss roosevelt and so important other caveat here is like i'm not a military guy so like I'm like the equipment and like the roles and the jargon and stuff is not like secondhand to me. So if I call some plane something or some tech something, then it's something else. Like I don't want a hundred emails from 
if people telling me I, I don't know military equipment, it's true. I don't, I don't know military equipment. I'm not a military guy. So like that caveat, uh, I don't think that prevents me from seeing like how serious it is, but that's, you know, background information. So on, in the Nimitz, what happened was we had for the, for you know a week in advance of the, the recorded videos, um, Kevin Day, who's a, a radar operator aboard the Nimitz, and the Nimitz has this, you know, massive radar system and people say it's, you know, the most advanced um, radar technology in the world or whatever. Um, and it, uh, in a week before the incidents at hand, he was observing this behavior on the radar. He would see objects that were flowing, uh, flying at a high altitude, so 50 to 80,000 feet at a relatively slow pace, like a pace they shouldn't be moving at at that altitude. But then they would suddenly drop from 50 to 80,000 feet down to like 50 feet above the water. And he's observing this on the radar of the ship, this advanced radar. And he's observing this for about a week. Now, critics are correct that like sometimes radar will pick up stuff that's like not what it seems. Like it'll be like, a, you know, a cloud or like, you know, so, some sort of like glitch in the radar. Something looks really strange. So. Yeah, I saw one video that said it was just like a fly uh, that was like on the system or something. I don't know. But yeah. Right. So like whatever kind of glitch, you know, and that's what Kevin Day says. He's like, he didn't know what it was. So they rebooted the radar systems on the on the on the um, on the ship and they troubleshoot them trying to figure out, like, what is this weird thing? So that's like the sort of what was going on for a week. But they were getting ready to start doing um, exercises with the planes. Um, you know, we're going to start being in the air around there. Up until then, it was just the ships. And so they weren't really that worried about it. But now they were going to be scrambling jets. And they're like, well, this is actually potentially a safety risk. So before they started the exercises, they sent out um, they sent out two, uh, two, two, pilot, two ships or two planes with four pilots in them. They sent them out and they scrambled them to the location on the radar where they were observing these things. So that's like important piece of evidence, number one. They were being seen on the ship's radar and the, Kevin Day, the, the guy who was working the radar, sent these pilots out to find the thing. So they, they were scrambled and sent to the area. And Kevin Day, he says he saw them merge on the radar with these um, things that he was observing in the radar. So like... Merge means they like look like one dot on the radar. So he was there. And this is where the testimony of the pilots takes over. So one pilot was David Fravor, who is, you know, top gun pilot. And he's there. He's flying one of the planes. And then there's uh, another pilot who um, was flying the other plane. And he sees this like 40 foot long thing he describes as a tic-tac. It looks like a giant 40 foot long tic-tac. It's down by the surface of the water. Right. So. And he 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 uh, flies down to see it. I'm sure there's like military guys are like he's talking like an idiot. No one says flies down to see it. I'm sure there's some military term for what he did. He engaged it or whatever. So he flies down to see it, and he's he he says it starts like moving around at this ridiculous speed. Like it's 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 moving in a way that uh, like nothing can move at that size that we know of. Yeah. So and, it's this forty foot long object. Is he is he uh, when he's doing this? Is he actually looking at the thing with his eyes or is it still through instruments of some sort uh, of some sort? Yeah. So this is visual. He is, he does not have the FLIR camera on his plane. He is observing this visually. So you have the two pilots 
in one plane who are seeing this visually as they approach it. And the other plane has sort of kept at the high altitude and is watching from above. And they're seeing the exact same thing, which is this, this 40 foot long thing move around at speeds, turning at speeds that like no technology we know can do. And then all of a sudden it just flies away at like supersonic speed. So both sets of the pilots in both planes say, this is exactly what happened. It flew away at supersonic speed. And they, they messaged back to Kevin Day in the radar room with Nimitz, and they said, where did it go? And he said it disappeared. So, like, already this is a pretty significant accumulation of evidence that you have four pilots in two planes who are seeing this thing visually. Um, and it's consistent with what they're seeing on the radar in the ships. And the radar operators in the ships are the ones that sent them out there in the first place. And then it disappears, and they said it disappeared again. So these guys go back to the ship. And um, some other, uh, another plane gets scrambled with another pilot in it, um, Chad Underwood. And this is when the recording happens. Chad Underwood makes the recording. So Commander Fravor, the one who was just out there, says to Chad Underwood, like, you got, they're going to send you out there, like, try to record this thing. Um, so that's what uh, Commander Underwood is trying to do. He's trying to record it. And he flies out there, and he doesn't get visuals on it himself he gets it on his equipment. So he is looking at his FLIR camera, which is like um, an infrared camera, like located like, near the guns of the ship. It's like a gunning camera or whatever. And it captures this famous Tic Tac video. And this is the one that's been released and everyone has seen. So what happens is, so he captures it on there and he also sees it on the radar of his plane. So like now we've got the radar on the ship that they saw that sent it out there. That was happening a week in advance. You've got the four pilots who saw it visually. You've got um, uh, another set of pilots who are capturing on their FLIR camera, and we've seen that footage, and it was captured on the radar. And they're all seeing the same thing. And like this is all public knowledge now. So that's that's the um, the evidence for the Nimitz incident. And I think that that by itself is like extraordinarily compelling. Like. That's so many different kinds of observations. And what happens is the critics are, will like look at this video and they'll be like, well, what could possibly could it have been this video? What can possibly explain this video? And they just totally ignore all the other evidence. And like, what, what could it be that explains the, the radar on the ship, the radar on the plane, the visuals from four pilots at two different angles and the FLIR camera? Like that's a lot of accumulated evidence. And to me, I think that people who look at the video and try to debunk that they're like they're that's not how you that's not how you examine evidence you don't just pick one thing and say like all right what possibly could explain this you're throwing parsimoniousness just out you need to find something that can explain all these things and what people tell me is like oh well there, there's a separate explanation for all of them like the visuals were like you know they imagined it or like it was like some reflection of something and the radar was a radar blip. And the FLIR camera was like, oh, that was like a, <clears throat> a balloon or something. And like it, they, they ignored that it was also showing up in the radar of the ship at the same time. Like what? So like to me, that that sounds like an extraordinary mystery. And it's just being like dismissed by knee-jerk skepticism. 
So what are the what are the policy implications? What's uh, what do we do from here if we if we think this is something that needs to be explored? I mean, there's a whole world of possibilities of what that means from a U.S. perspective, from a human perspective. Where would we go from here? So I would say the first thing is that the government just needs to stop holding this information back. Um, if the government sees something and they have evidence for it and they don't know what it is. And then they have no right to keep it from us because if they don't know what it is and they're not compromising national security by showing us this evidence. And I think we have a right to see it. I don't think that they have a right to keep photographs that are like totally unexplained. Um, keep that secret just because I, I don't think that I don't think unexplained mysteries are compelling. Keeping them hidden accomplishes any national security goals. So I would ask for much more transparency there. Well, what we hear, apart from say the uh, the story that was just in the Jerusalem Post with, I guess the the former head of Israeli uh, space uh, exploration, what what are what are other governments doing? I mean, is is the U.S. approach to how they're withholding information or disclosing information is it any different than what any other government is actually doing? Well, first the guy in the report in the Jerusalem Post—that's ridiculous story—and like. <laughs> He's crazy. And like, this is one of the challenges of like trying to make the case for compelling UFO evidence is there's still all the garbage stuff out there and like the garbage stuff gets thrown in with this. And like, it's just not, it's, it's not the same thing, you know, like some crazy old guy who says he met aliens is not the same thing as like, you know, military experts observing this across all this different equipment. So like, um, you know, if one of the one of the best things to watch on what's happening here is a, a, the unidentified documentary series on the History Channel, and what they say is that you know two governments that are being much more active and transparent about pursuing this are Brazil and Italy because they had some incidents of their own there, and they're sort of looking into this, um, and they're like being more transparent. But I don't know that anybody is really you know showing everything, which I think that they should. Um, and I, I don't know what everyone is doing, but it's, you know, the, the U.S. government, what we, they, the, um, Harry Reid got funding for the ATIP program, which is where a lot of this information that we know came from there. They, one of the things they were in charge of doing was, you know, investigating, um, unidentified flying object evidence. And so the guy who was, um, you know, worked for ATIP, Lou Elizondo, he has since left the government. And what he's been trying to do is get into the public realm things that he knows exist, evidence he knows exists because he saw it and it was classified. So for example, he gets all these, you know, classified information about these pilots who saw these things. And what he's been doing is trying to get them to come out and go on the record, the public record. So it's not classified anymore. And he's been successful in doing that. And what he says is there's a ton more evidence that he just can't tell us about. And he's trying to get out in public. But like, that's compelling. Like what we already have seen is crazy. So if he says there's a lot more of it and there are other government people who say that too, you know, Harry Reid says, we haven't seen most of the evidence. And, um, you know, Marco Rubio says this is a really important national security issue. So you have Harry Reid, Marco Rubio, you know, all these government insiders, uh, you know, the, the former undersecretary of defense, um, Chris Mellon, or former undersecretary of defense for intelligence chris mellon is another person who says like we just need to get this stuff out and so i think that that is the 
that's the most important public policy thing is like, show us what you know so that you can get more eyes on it and so that we can start taking this seriously. Yeah. uh, And I think uh, in addition to everything that you said, you know, one advantage of making whatever material that we have public is that it would, it would help a lot more to know like what exactly we do and don't have. Right. So I know, you know, there was a New York times article uh, a few months ago that, and they, the, the wording of it was very convoluted, but it basically suggested that the U S was in position in possession of like material from what they believed was one of these crafts that was like, not from this planet or something like that. Right. Now, what exactly does that mean? How credible is that? Is that, is that real or is that just a rumor? Uh, you know, that's the sort of thing where as long as, as long as a lot of this stuff is secret, there's no way to, there's really no way to evaluate that. Um, but you know, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's an interesting part of the, the puzzle, I guess. Yeah, the material stuff is interesting because it sort of illustrates the problem of the point that we're at. Like the stuff that the government has, we don't know. Um, And then there's all these claims that people in the private sector have some of these materials. But like a lot of them are like they're UFO people who have been talking about UFOs for like 50 years. And like how seriously can you even take these people when they like believe that – they also believe that, you know, at Roswell, we recovered a craft, reverse engineered it and like it, it, alien autopsy stuff. And it's like, you know, the whole the whole area of of knowledge is just polluted with like cranks and misinformation. And I, that's why I want the government to release the credible evidence that we have so that more credible people take a look at this. So we don't just have to rely on like trying to like parse through what cranks are saying. Yeah, and, and I don't know yet whether material stuff is is just cranks saying their weirdo stuff, or whether it's like more of the new compelling evidence. We I don't know where that lies yet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I presume uh, that. Yeah. I mean, like obviously the the if it doesn't exist, then of course it doesn't exist. If there is something, then being able to examine it, uh, you know, and share results of what it, exactly it is, could be. Uh, pretty important and uh just one other point that i would want to make to try and like because I, I i think the the issue that i think i see from a lot of people is if you are like uh an educated you know respectable person you just kind of like know in the back of your heads okay in your head well like ufos that doesn't exist right so you you know you kind of like even if you formally try and go through some of the evidence, mostly you just are not really, you know, you're just kind of like flat tuning it out because you, you know, in advance, it's like, Oh, well this can't be, you know? So I think that's part of the reason why this hasn't gotten more attention. And, you know, the thing that I would just say is all of the stuff that you're describing, it has an explanation, right? You know, (laughs) It, reality is such that it has an explanation. And if the explanation is not some sort of extraterrestrial thing, right, uh, then there's some other explanation. And that also is important, right? Uh, whether it's some sort of secret advanced craft uh, or, or whatever, um, there has to be some other explanation. And, and 
that's important to investigate too, <laughs> because that could also have some pretty big implications. Yeah, absolutely. Like I'm, I'm not claiming that we know that this is UFOs. Right. What I'm saying, what I think well, we do. Yeah. I, I think what we. UFO, right. Just from. Right. From, yeah. But you're not saying it's aliens. Right. Yeah. Right. I'm not saying that, and and none are, neither are most of the um, military people who have witnessed this directly. What they're saying is like, look, I saw a mystery out there, and it's not my job to say what it is, but it is, you know, my job to warn people that we don't know what it is. And I think that, I think what we should accept, um, with, you know, reasonably high likelihood at this point, is none of the normal answers weather balloons, radar blips, none of those things are what happened. And we should just focus on getting more information so we can decide which of the not normal things it is. Because it could absolutely be just another natural phenomenon. Like maybe this is something like ball lightning, um, you know, but it like tracks technology. It like follows, you know, it's drawn to the energy in the planes or something. I have no, no clue. But like natural phenomenon is absolutely on the table. Um, military tech of our own or of another government's is still on the table. I, I do think that based on the way our own military is acting about it, that it's not ours. Um, you know, they would be a lot more careful about burying this information if it was versus like just letting it out like this. And like, like a lot of these pilots, they saw this thing and the military didn't like come to them and say, don't tell anybody that you saw this. So like, and that's what happens when they normally see something that's, like a secret military technology. So I don't think that's the most likely explanation at this point. And also like Harry Reid, Marco Rubio, they would have gotten that answer by now. Right. <laughs> like it could be an, it, it could be another country's military technology. Right. And that's all, that's all on the table. Like I'm less interested in arguing like to convince people that this is UFOs, but I'm just trying to convince people that like the extremely narrow, unpersuasive debunking of the video alone that you are relying on it is not sufficient. It is not sufficient to address the evidence that we have here. And I see this knee-jerk reaction from people on Twitter all the time. They're like, no, I think that video was debunked. And that's like it. And they're not, they're like, well, the video literally, they don't talk about the radar. They don't talk about the visuals. They don't talk about all the evidence of it happening at the same time. And, you know, not just the Nimitz incident, but the other incident, which I didn't go into, but like there's another incident and you've got multiple observations across multiple sensors there as well so like the debunkings don't missiles or or something else or so uh, the the other incident is from 2014 2015 off the east coast there was a lot of observations of you know unidentified flying objects as well by pilots and you have um two videos from FLIR cams were produced here and like this is a really interesting example because it shows how sort of narrow the debunkings are like there's one video where you got something that looks like a top and it's going really fast and it's rotating and the debunking videos are like, well, that's just a jet. It's just like, you know, one of the engines of the jet is hidden and that's the other engine of the jet and the pilot's just confused. And it's like, do you not think that the pilot would see the jet on his radar? Like, <laughs> like they have they have radar. They first off they know what jets look like in the FLIR cam. Second off, they have radar in addition to these cameras, and they ignore the evidence, which is if you ask the pilot who recorded the video, what he says is look on the radar, there's a whole fleet of these things. 
Right. So like now, now explain that to me, like explain to me how the radar showed a fleet of objects and also you, the, but the video was just like one, one jet that they also missed. Like they just, they don't, they're not looking at the totality of the evidence, even, even close. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned ball lightning, which I think is a, a pretty good analogy in that it was until recently kind of dismissed that such a thing even existed, even though there was like lots of examples of people saying that they saw it and other things. Uh, but that was just kind of dismissed. And then only more recently we figured out, oh yeah, this is kind of like a natural thing that can happen. Um, so, uh, all right, well we could, uh, Doug, do you have anything? Yes. So we've established, so we've established that you are the alien economist and possibly to, to break new ground. Uh, I wanted to ask you, um, about, what alien economics might be like, because, you know, here on earth we have, you know, I, I, I like, I like the economist Friedrich Hayek and he talks a lot about the knowledge problem, but if we're talking about aliens who've actually made it from, I don't know where, some other galaxy and that you would assume that they've got advanced intelligence or advanced artificial intelligence, would, would you expect that those aliens, if they exist, would have solved the, you know, what Friedrich Hayek called the knowledge problem? So I, let's think about aliens as representing like maybe two or 300 years in the advancement of our technology. I think it's probably the best way to think about that. Or maybe it's a thousand years, maybe 2000 years. So are we eventually going to solve the knowledge problem? I guess is another way to think of this. Um, and uh, I don't think that will be the case because I think that I think that our preferences are sort of chaotic. Like, you know, when you go to, when you go to a restaurant you, you, that, you know, um, and you've been there and you see the menu, can you always predict what you're going to order when you get there? I can't, um, you know, I need to see what's there, uh, you know, what the specials are, or like, you know, what I'm in the mood for, what I'm feeling like. And there's a, there's a chaos to our preferences that you're just never going to you're never going to forecast at an individual level. So there's that problem, the the pure unpredictability. You're never going to have a, a machine that's delivering you your or you know uh, algorithms that are delivering you your goods and services um, without you know you having to operate through choice and the and uh, prices to determine what it is you want because no algorithm is ever going to know what your choices are going to be better than you making those choices for yourself. So to individual choice will always matter because individual choice is going to have that chaotic element to it. Um, the other part of this is that I think that, you know, there's, there's, there's what we know that we can quantify and sort of describe formally. And there's what we know that we can't. And it's like, I think David Aldor has the, he's an economist and he has the comparison, like, you know, it'd be really hard to explain exactly how we ride a bicycle, like to write it down, like write down what it is that you know to explain to someone else how to ride a bicycle. Like it's, it's knowledge that's difficult to, um, to capture that way. And so think of that as like, you know, being in the highly subjective realm, the, um, you know, you're never going to put it onto a spreadsheet. It's just sort of like intuitive knowledge. And I think that you're never, you don't, you won't get that that's going to be hard for um, technology and machines to ever, you know, fully understand those things. 
and like a great example of this is like look at the difference between a um one standard deviation salesman and a 10 standard deviation salesman like do you think that the differences in their abilities are ever something that we're ever going to be able to you know uh to record and capture and uh in like implement programmatically and like teach a machine to do or do you think that they're like you know inherently kind of subjective difficult to understand differences in the way that humans subtly interact with each other i tend to think that those are sort of irreducible and that we'll never get there so i think when you think about all those different dimensions we're always going to have we're always going to have the knowledge problem we're always going to have sort of distributed knowledge even if it's limited to that which is like highly intuitive or subjective and that algorithms will never capture that we're always going to need the market and price systems to sort of work through it but obviously algorithms and super advanced intelligence there is an awful lot they can know and you know awful lot of corners of markets and pieces of markets that they could replace with sufficiently advanced technology all right. Uh, I think we will leave it there. Our guest today has been Adam Ozemek. Adam, thank you very much for joining us. Yep. Glad to be here. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe, leave favorable reviews, and tell your friends to tune in to the Urban Cowboys.